Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you to recognize who you are, to declare what we believe, that you do reign above all, and that you reign in our individual lives. You have plans and purposes for each one of us, plans for good, not what Satan intends to kill, steal, and destroy, but plans to prosper us and bless us. And I pray particularly for the persons who are here today who feel beaten down, who feel like life has won and they've lost, whose hearts are wounded. Lord, we ask that you would touch them with encouragement, with hope, with healing. For all of us, that you would speak to us that yet again you would fill our spirits that we might go into the world, be your disciples, make disciples. We pray against any spirit of Satan that would try to distract or confuse in any way. We pray for the spirit of truth to be upon us. Amen. We started this series, We Believe Again, in order to really declare what is it that we believe. We're in a time where the culture declares that everything is changing, that there is no eternal truth, everything's relative. You can have your own personal truth, but that's it. But we believe that Jesus is truth, his very nature, his character, it's who he is. And that he, everything about him, all that we can learn is truth that is applicable to our lives and how to live life. Much of what's going on in the culture is filled with lies that have as their intent to undermine and then destroy individual lives. And if you look at the landscape of the culture, well, the lies are being pretty effective as many people's lives are being destroyed in various ways. And in such a culture, I think even those who are sure of their faith in Christ can find themselves at times going, what is it I believe about this topic or this idea? It's one of the reasons we did this series last year entitled Confronting the Chaos, to identify what is it in the world that is really the foundation of all this chaos, which is certainly the work of Satan, that it is an attack upon the image of God and the primary methodology is through lies. And see, that's, it's important that you and I know what we believe, stand firm in the truth in order to fight the spiritual battles that we face. And so we've been using the Nicene Creed as an outline, not because we rely upon creeds as a church, but because... As far as I know, it's the only statement of faith universally accepted by all branches of Christianity. And it is 
accepted because it is such a succinct and biblically grounded statement of belief. And we've been walking through that. Where we were last week was the part of the creed that says, We believe in the one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. All of those statements are repeated there because the council was trying to emphasize that Jesus and God the Father are of the same essence, one and the same. They are different in personhood. They are different in roles that they have eternally carried out. But they are one and the same, truly God, that he's begotten, not made. In other words, he emanates from God the Father, but he wasn't a created being. You see, if, if Jesus was anything less than God, he could not have fulfilled all of the things that he did in his mission in coming to this world. But because he's God, then he could be the sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. But he emanates from God the Father that he, he comes from, but he is not created. He has eternally existed. And so we looked at these scriptures that talk about who Jesus is. In Corinthians, it says, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we spent a lot of time talking about this title, Lord Jesus Christ. Because Lord means one who has all authority, all power, is in charge of all things. Sometimes in earthly terms, we think of the Lord of a certain region or something like that. If you go to Europe, there are a lot of people who have titles as lords. Well, that's where the term landlord came from. That people at one time were given by the king of a country, a region, a piece of property, and they were the lord of that property. They had authority over that property. And so that's where those terms come from. But the supreme Lord is Jesus because he has authority over all things. And then, of course, the name Jesus is the name that was to be given to him because it means the one who is the Savior or through whom salvation comes. And Christ means Messiah. And see, this title is of utmost importance that he's the Lord of all things, the one who saves, the one who is the Messiah for the entire world. And then also we talked last week about the fact that he is the son. Now, there is this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're going to explore more and more over the next few weeks that we can do the best we can to understand, but we'll still fall short. But that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are eternally equal there is no inferiority in one person versus the other. But they do have differing roles. And there is clearly a role of submission within this relationship of God. Because God the Son in coming to this world and fulfilling the mission set before him was clearly submitting to God the Father on various occasions. And God chose to send his one and only only son some of the cults out there the false teachings are that you can become a god you can become a son of god there's one true god one true only son you and i becomes adopted sons and daughters we are not of the same level because the holy spirit comes to dwell within you doesn't make you equivalent with god it makes you his child his adopted child and God sent his son into the world for an eternal purpose. 
And we looked at the scripture last week where it talks about the baptism of Jesus. And I've emphasized before, if Jesus was baptized, then it's important that you and I be baptized. You are not saved by baptism. There are those who teach what's called baptismal regeneration. You're saved by baptism. We don't believe that. We believe you're saved by relationship with Christ, and then baptism is an outward sign of what God has done in you. But Jesus himself submitted to baptism as a sign of what he was doing in relationship to the Father. And then the Father, the Holy Spirit was seen in this situation, and the Father said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Which, by the way, in talking about baptisms, we had baptisms here shortly ago, and then just in the recent week, we've talked about uh, when we'll do it again, and we're talking about doing it again on Easter, which is the last weekend in March. If you recall, last year at Easter, we had a bit of an outpouring of baptisms. So if you're a person who has been thinking about that, then you might plant in your mind that might be a special time for you to be baptized. And then also last week, we talked about this idea that Jesus is begotten, not made. Not all translations use the word begotten because it's a, a bit of a dated term, but it's still real. And begotten does incline that something uh, came from as if it was created, but that's not what it's saying about Jesus. That he comes from God the Father, there's this eternal relationship, but he's not created, he just came into this world. And that's what we're going to explore today. In John, it says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, talking about Jesus. One of the lies that's out there is what the Jehovah's Witnesses promulgate, and they change this very line right here where it says the Word was God to a word, the Word was a God. And they diminish the role of Jesus. Look, Really, the eternal question is, who is Jesus? And it's also the question that you can apply in sifting through the teaching of any group of people. Because if there is anyone who in any way undermines the eternal divinity of Jesus, then it's false and it's deception. Yet throughout history, there have always been such teachers, false teachers, and there always will be. The scripture also says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And even that he sustains all things by his power. The exact representation of God. And that's what we're going to explore today in talking about, well, why did Jesus come into this world? And again, it's a question that I can pose, but I cannot fully answer we can only understand as best possible with our limited capacities. But we want to talk about this idea of the Word made flesh. That Jesus, eternal God, took the form of a man, came into this world, lived in flesh. That he was the visible representation of God the Father. Look, I'm convinced that every person in the world really is searching, looking for something. A, that fills the void in their heart, but gives them some cohesive principle upon which to live. And because we're in a spiritual battle, the spirits of evil will always propose falsehood. 
They will always propose something that you can place your belief in and hang your hat on and live your life that way that leads you away from Christ. The only real answer is to know the living God, have a relationship with him, and follow his will for your life. But so many people are deceived. And yet I believe that Jesus came into this world to conquer the lies, to conquer evil, conquer the deception, to reveal to us in a way that we could understand, but yet we all still must choose whom you will follow. I'm reminded of the scripture in the Old Testament where Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he did that throughout his life. He established a legacy of faithfulness in his life. And actually, he had established that legacy before he'd made that statement. He just continued to carry it out. Well, as we go to the next part of the Nicene Creed, it says this. That for us men and our salvation, he, that is Jesus, came down from heaven. That he left his eternal throne to take the form of a man. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate by the Virgin Mary and was made man. The word incarnate means to take flesh, to become flesh. We use the word carnal to refer to somebody who's living by the flesh, by their sinful desires. And it's the same root. It means to become or be in the body, in one's flesh. And so normally we read this scripture in Luke around Christmas time that talks about this idea of his incarnation. There it says that the angel appeared to Mary. says, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God. Now look, we respect Mary. We should learn from her life, but we don't hold Mary in exceptional, uh, an exceptional place. We don't pray to Mary. We pray to Jesus and have relationship with him. But she did have a unique and special role. The angel said, you'll be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And this name that is above every name has a very specific title about salvation. And she says, well, how will this be? Because I've never been with a man. I'm a virgin. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now imagine if you're Mary. She is undoubtedly still a teenager. She's betrothed, that is, engaged to Joseph to be married. And now an angel appears to her and says, you're going to have a child, and it's going to come from the Holy Spirit, who she probably doesn't even understand that concept. This child is going to be the Holy One from God. Now if you're Mary, in that context, who do you tell like, do you go to your parents and say, by the way, I'm going to have a child. I haven't been with any man. Or who are you going to tell that this angel appeared? Or how about Joseph? Now, Joseph, I know this is going to be hard for you to accept, but this angel told me. I mean, think about it, really, from her position. And yet, you see that she's obedient and submissive in the rest of the Scripture. Then also, 
in Matthew, it records it this way. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, that his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit, which is really beyond comprehension. Actually, any woman being with child by normal means is beyond comprehension. This supernatural thing that God has created that male and female would come together in the relationship of marriage and have children. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. It's something that he wants. He blesses every child as a blessing from the Lord. But it's just beyond comprehension that an individual life appears. But here is one that will occur in the most unique of ways. Now, actually, many of you have probably heard of the term immaculate conception. And actually, for many years, I misunderstood that concept. Because I thought it was the Catholics referring to the conception of Jesus in the form that's described here in the Scripture. Actually, in the Catholic religion, it regards Mary herself. That she was immaculately conceived and without a sin nature. Therefore, she could host the divinity of Jesus. There's no biblical basis for that whatsoever. That she's an ordinary woman. And her role is simply to provide the human capacity or the human body for the one who is God. An extraordinary role. It says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet that the virgin would be with child and give birth to a son. He would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is a quote from Isaiah 7.14. Now, it's interesting, people criticize Christianity and criticize Jesus because people say, well, he, he fulfilled all of these many prophecies, something like 400 from the Old Testament. And people say, well, he knew the Old Testament, so he just set about to do things that would make it look like he could complete all these things. I don't know how you set about to accomplish that unless you're God. Now, then, see, the question that really in my mind is why did God choose to come in this form why did he not come another way for that matter why did he even come you know at the Mount of Transfiguration Jesus takes Peter James and John up on the mountain and then what happens Jesus is transfigured to the point where they see his glory like the scripture gives some description of it in a way that is this magnificence about him, his glory. So why didn't Jesus appear initially that way? Why didn't he just arrive on, say, Mount Sinai in all of his glory with his angels with him and everybody would then immediately see who he is? Maybe some would have at that point bowed down and worshipped him. Many would have run in fear. But instead, he chose to come in this most humble of ways. He chose to come not even as an adult male, but as a baby. Now, I think part of the reason for the incarnation, for him taking flesh, was so that you and I could comprehend. I've been saying this more and more often that I believe everything about this world is created so that it reveals something to us about the nature of God. 
Even what he has allowed in evil and darkness and all those things, he has allowed so that we might better understand who he is in his holiness. Because you would not know what good is unless you knew what evil is. You wouldn't know what light is unless you knew what darkness is. And so there's something about he came into this world to reveal to us that he took the form of a man. Now, the, this word incarnate, as I say, re- indicates that he became flesh. But it doesn't mean that's when he came into existence. Here he was talking with some of the Pharisees and, and they were shouting him down, attacking him because he had said something about his father Abraham. And then he responded to them and said, before Abraham was born... I am, which to them was certain blasphemy because Father Abraham was the supreme character in the nation of Israel at that time and still yet today. But he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, these I am statements are in different places in Scripture and are very important. Remember, Moses said to God, when he was calling him to go to Pharaoh to deliver the people of Israel, he said, who shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am. Which, again, is another term that is beyond our full understanding, but I think it means he he is the one who has eternally existed, eternally sustained all things, the one who is Lord of all. I am. And then we find in the New Testament... There are many I am statements about his character and nature. For example, I am the bread of life. And so here he was saying, I am. So we shouldn't, under, we shouldn't confuse the idea that when Jesus came into the world, somehow he came into being. He had eternally existed beforehand. He's revealed in the Old Testament in various ways. He's prophesied completely throughout the Old Testament. Then he came to fulfill what God had said. In John it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came through the Father, full of grace and truth. That he took the form of a man. And he did choose to reveal himself as a man. I know we live in a culture that is so gender-confused. And basically, the culture wants to say that any idea of gender should be erased. But look, it is God who has created us male and female. I do not believe that that means that male is superior or inferior or vice versa in any way. I don't think it has anything to do with that. But is it not true that God has appointed roles for men and for women? No matter what the crazy culture says, men... Genuine men are not going to bear children. God has appointed roles for us in this world. And he has revealed things to us about his nature through what he has created in us. That he is God the Father. And in fact, from a scriptural standpoint, it's very clear that God has appointed roles such as the role of headship. That men have a responsibility of headship in their families, which is not a, a responsibility of authoritarianism. It is a responsibility to provide, protect, and to serve. It's to be a leader by protecting and serving and providing, always being the one who is concerned about others. 
And God has given the responsibility of headship to men in the church. That's what we believe as a church, that elders are men who have a responsibility to guard the flock, to protect the flock, to serve the flock. And so God chose to come into this world in the form of a man to reveal to us some of the things that he is already revealing to us in the nature of the world. There are just so many things in this world that the only way that you and I have any concept of them whatsoever is that God has said it so that you and I can see it and understand it. You see, I mentioned this last week, I think, that there is no way you could understand the concept of what a son is except that God has created us so that we could know what a son or a daughter is in this world. And so this is to reveal something about his eternal relationship within the Godhead, that is, that God the Son came into this world, was made flesh to fully reveal to us who God is. He said, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That too was blasphemy to the Pharisees. It's one of the reasons they wanted to stone him and kill him. And of course they thought they had gained victory by doing so eventually. The saddest scripture in all of the Bible to me is the one where the people are crying out, before, when he's before Pontius Pilate, and they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And then they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Oh, what a, what a terrible thing to say. Because the sins of the fathers are cast to the third and the fourth generation. Your choices matter for your children and the children that follow. And any generation can be the generation that takes a stand for the glory of God against the darkness such that what you do is cast upon your children and the children thereafter the blessings of God. Because his blessings are for a thousand generations for those who love him. And he said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen him, you have seen the Father. Now, this, I believe, is why he took the form of a man. If we could make any statement about why did he come in this way, why did he take the form of a man, why did he come as a baby? I think so that he would go through life as all of us go through life. The scripture says he was tempted in every way but without sin. So he had to start as a baby, go through life as we do, go into adulthood in order to experience the things or really demonstrate the things that we experience. And so it says in Galatians that when the time had fully come, in other words, at the perfect time, see, before God created the world, he had decided, had appointed, that at the perfect time, Jesus would come. There are those who, who say, well, it was because that man made bad choices. If Adam and Eve had made better choices, then it would have been different. No, God knew what would happen in advance. He appointed at the fullness of time that he would come. He had planned it this way, that God sent his son born of a woman. Now, why, why was he born of a virgin? Because there, there are titles in the scripture that talk about the son of man and the son of God. They're both given to Jesus. Son of man and son of God. They're both accurate, but they're both saying something different. Because he is the eternal son of the living God, of the Father. But he's also a son of man because he took upon himself flesh. 
He had to be born of a virgin because if he was born of a natural means, then he couldn't be God. But he took flesh from a human, but it was the Holy Spirit who imparted life. You see, when you and I are born, we have a soul, we're alive, we have a physical body, we're alive, but our spirit is born spiritually dead because of the sins of our forefathers. But when Jesus was incarnate, his spirit was fully alive in connection with, engaged with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There was never a moment when they were separate. People say, well, what about on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no separation in their eternal relationship. That was simply his manhood experiencing the weight of the world's sin. But you see, even in the incarnation, there's this perfect unity between the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son. He takes the form of a man in order to come into this world to live and demonstrate and fulfill what you and I could not do. It says he was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. See, I would say that statement right there, born under the law to redeem those under the law, tells us more about why he became flesh than anything else that I know of. Because, you see, the law is what? The law is the moral law of God primarily, given in the Old Testament. And when we're talking about anything that you and I think is evil or wrong, lying, adultery, murder, all those things, that's the moral law of God. When we say a person sins, what they have done is violate the moral law of God. There are times that people do things you don't like, but it wasn't a sin. It wasn't a violation of the moral law of God. Now, God gave the moral law to the people of Israel through Moses. He also gave them the ceremonial and civil laws, which were the things they had to do when they violated the moral law. But here's the question. Did the moral law come into existence when God gave it to Moses? And the answer is no. The moral law comes from the holiness of God. Because he is holy and righteous, the moral law is this is what it means to walk with the living God who himself is holy. Yet he knew that human beings could not do it. And for whatever reasons that, again, are beyond our understanding, he gave us the capacity to rebel against his holiness. And I think it has to do with if he had created us any other way, then we wouldn't have the capacity to genuinely love him. But he gave us the capacity to rebel against his holiness. And yet he knew that he would have a plan to redeem each one of us who had violated his moral law. And so Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. In other words, he was born under this, this contract that all humans had violated to redeem us from having sinned against the one true holy God. And you see, all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. Not a single person can be redeemed apart from the shed blood of Christ. But he desires that no one would perish. So therefore, he has made the provision that absolutely any person, anywhere, in any condition can be redeemed from their sin and have life. That's what you and I should celebrate over and over and over. Like when we were singing, he reigns above it all. He reigns above the darkness above the evil 
He redeems you and I. He says that he was born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive the rights of sons. That God sent his spirit into our hearts that you and I might cry, Abba, Father. That we would no longer be a slave but be a son. We were slaves to sin. Now maybe some of you here don't realize you were a slave to sin. I think when you're a young person, it's hard to figure that out and understand it. But if you've lived long enough, you ought to be able to see that you were a slave to sin in some form or another. I look at my own life and and recently I was having a conversation with someone and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to go back and talk to a few people that I knew decades ago. And I would like to talk to them for one reason, just to say, would you forgive me for something I did or something I said? Some of them probably are like, I don't remember anything, but I do. It's interesting, when you don't know Christ, you you harden your heart such that all the terrible, sinful things you do, you sort of just try to compress them, suppress them, so that you don't consider them things that are really applying to your life thereafter. But after you come to know Christ, and he gives you an understanding of what holiness is, and you look back at your own life, at least I do, I go, oh, what a fool, what a wretch. How could I have done such a thing? And then I realize the just penalty for my actions is death. See, because I was born under the law, a sinful man, fallen, with no hope of redemption. You cannot dig yourself out of the pit of the slime of sin. You can't dig yourself out. It's impossible. Until Christ lifts you out. Then he sets your feet on solid ground. He cleans you up. He says, there's nothing about you that is despicable anymore. He makes you pure, white as snow. See, isn't it true every time the snow falls, like the recent snowfall, isn't there a beauty about it? And here again, it's God revealing something to us about himself. That he has made you white as snow by the blood that he shed. And the only way in his infinite wisdom, maybe not the only way, but the perfect way to redeem man was that he would take the form of a baby, live in this world, live a sinless life, then die that you might arise. See, the scripture says, no greater love has one man for another than to lay down his life for him. This too is a demonstration of the nature and character of who Jesus is. That his nature, his love is so perfect, so infinite, that he would die to save you. Scripture indicates that a good man might die to save a friend. 
But what about those who were enemies? That's what we were all enemies of God until such time as he redeemed us. Would you die for your enemy? That's what he did. He came under the law. And then in Matthew it says, Jesus was making this statement. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, he's saying everything that you've known that has been prophesied, all of the things that are morally right, I haven't come to say all those don't matter. That's what the culture tries to say today, that there is nothing morally right. It doesn't matter. Whatever, however I want to live, that's fine. No, no, no. That's blasphemy against the image of God. He's saying, I've come to fulfill everything on your behalf because you could not do it. You can have relationship with them. If you were here last week, I was telling that little story about the lady at the ski lift. And one of the things I said to her in my five-second conversation is, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. And so much of the world has been deceived by religion. A lot of young people have a distaste for religion. And I can understand that. But once you have tasted and seen that he is good. Once you've tasted of a relationship with the living God. Then you know that there's nothing else that is quite as satisfying and sweet. Because he is the answer to life. He doesn't just provide answers. He is the answer. See, the scripture also says this, and this is what was referred to in the creed where it says he's light of light, God of God, true God from true God. In him was life. See, that's what everybody is hungering for. Everybody's thirsting for. Everybody wants life. You only find it in him. That life was the light of men. It shines in the darkness. Much of the darkness does not understand it. But one by one, by the work of his spirit, he illuminates your heart and mind to the point where you can understand enough to have faith. See, faith is a gift from God. When his Holy Spirit is upon you, when he's drawing you, he, he works in ways that are mysteries supernaturally to open your heart and your mind that you might see the light. And then when your heart is open and you say, basically you say, help. You know, there is no really perfect prayer about accepting Christ. There are model prayers that people have used. That's fine. But perhaps the greatest prayer is, Lord, help me. That's the broken and contrite heart. Boy, the light of Christ comes rushing in. And he repels the darkness in your life. Now, I know many of you have invited Christ in your heart. Many of you have walked with him for a long time. Each week, we're just growing in understanding. But there are probably some here or watching online where you've never really committed your life to Christ. Well, everything you're looking for in life, everything you're hoping for, every dream you have is contingent upon you humbling yourself before him and seeking him. People say, well, if he would show himself to me, then I would believe. Or if he'd do something miraculous, then I would believe. If he would give me a sign, 
you wouldn't believe because you're in pride. It's the humble, the broken who seek him. They're the ones who believe. He said, I am the light of the world. One of those I am statements. That whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. But will have the light of life. Do you know him? Does his light shine through you? Has he transformed you? Has, you made, has he made you into a different person? Well, for all of us, he is remaking us day by day. It's a continuous remodeling job. Some of you have done those in your homes, haven't you? The remodeling job that starts, that just never quite finishes. Eventually, you'll be perfected. Do you realize this, that you were sanctified by the blood of Christ at the point that you accepted him? Then you are working out your salvation. You are being sanctified as you live. That is, he's making you more holy, more like Christ. Then when you enter into heaven, you're, you will be perfectly sanctified. There'll never be a, an inclination in you that would desire anything sinful. There'll be nothing in your will that will want to rebel against God. You will have been perfectly sanctified. And it's the process he's working you through in this journey of life. What he's doing is imparting the light of life into you day by day that you would become more like him. You see, as we go through this whole series, it's really about digging deeper into understanding that he reigns above it all. That he's the living God. He's the answer to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come before you asking you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon each and every person here, upon this church, upon our nation, that you would pour out your Spirit in conviction, in anointing to, de to declare the truth, in deliverance for people who are in bondages. If that's you, if there's a bondage in your life, He's calling you to lay it before him, to humble yourself before him, to invite his Holy Spirit to set you free, that you might be free indeed. And for all of us, Lord, I ask that you would make us beacons of light, that we might declare your truth everywhere in the life that we live. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.